Welcome to episode 15 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Focusing on the news now, and in the wake of the British Airways data breach episode and subsequent financial penalty that we featured on the last Security Matters podcast, the Information Commissioner's Office has now fined hotel group Marriott International the substantial sum of £18.4 million for the company's failure to keep millions of customers' personal data secure. Marriott International estimates that the records of 339 million guests worldwide were affected following a cyber attack that took place back in 2014 and involved Starwood hotels and resorts worldwide. The attack, which emanated from an unknown source, remained undetected until September 2018, by which time the company had been acquired by the Marriott Group. The personal data involved differed between individuals, but may have included names, email addresses, telephone numbers, unencrypted passport numbers, arrival and departure information, guest VIP statuses, and also loyalty program membership numbers. The precise number of people affected is unclear as there may have been multiple records for an individual guest. Seven million guest records related to people resident here in the UK. The ICO's investigation found that there were failures by Marriott International to put appropriate technical or organisational measures in place in order to protect the personal data being processed on its systems as required by the General Data Protection Regulation. Speaking about the fine, Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham has commented, Personal data is precious and businesses have to look after it. Millions of people's data was affected by Marriott International's failure. Thousands contacted the helpline, while others may have been forced to take action to protect their personal data because the company they trusted it to had not done so. When a business fails to look after its customers' data, the impact is not just a possible fine. What matters most is the public whose data they had a duty to protect. The ICO's investigation traced the cyber attack back to 2014 as stated, but the penalty only relates to the breach from 25th of May 2018, when new rules under the GDPR came into effect. Due to the fact that the breach happened before the UK decided to leave the European Union, the ICO investigated on behalf of all EU authorities as lead supervisory authority under the GDPR. The penalty and subsequent action have been improved by the other EU data protection authorities through the GDPR's cooperation process. Back in 2014, an unknown attacker installed a piece of code known as a web shell onto a device in the Starwood system, subsequently giving them the ability to access and edit the contents of this device on a remote basis. This access was exploited in order to install malware, enabling the attacker to have remote access to the system as a privileged user. As a result, the attacker would have gained unrestricted access to the relevant device, as well as other devices on the network to which that account would have enjoyed privileged access. Further tools were installed by the attacker to gather login credentials for additional users within the Starwood network. With these credentials, the database storing reservation data for Starwood customers was accessed and exported by the attacker. Marriott International acted promptly to contact customers, and the ICO has acknowledged this fact. The business also acted quickly to mitigate the risk of damage suffered by those customers affected, and has since instigated a number of measures designed to improve the security of its systems. The government's campaign to recruit 20,000 additional police officers over the next three years is ahead of schedule, with almost 6,000 new officers joining the service before the end of September. One year on from the launch of the campaign, 5,824 extra officers have joined police forces across England and Wales. This means that recruitment is well ahead of schedule, as the government has pledged to bring in an additional 6,000 officers by March of next year. The new officers are already working to help drive down crime and make the streets safer, with statistics showing that crime was already beginning to fall before the pandemic period began. Over recent weeks, the police services 
has also been keeping members of the public safe by stepping up enforcement against those flouting rules in place to help stop the spread of the coronavirus. Home Secretary Priti Patel has commented, putting more police officers on our streets is a priority for the British people, therefore it's also a priority for me. Just one year on from when we began recruiting, I'm delighted that there are nearly 6,000 of the 20,000 additional officers on our streets, cutting crime and making communities safer. As we've seen from the frontline response to the coronavirus, the work of each and every police officer helps to save lives. I would like to extend my gratitude to the new recruits for joining the police and being a part of this heroic national effort. The figures also show that 12,675 new officers joined the 43 forces across England and Wales between November 2019 and September of this year. As stated, 5,824 of those officers were specifically recruited as part of the Uplift programme. Others were brought on board to backfill posts left by leavers or through locally funded recruitment. There's now a total headcount of 134,885 officers deployed across forces in England and Wales. Martin Hewitt, Chair of the National Police Chiefs Council, has also offered his views on the policing numbers by stating, These additional officers are most welcome as the demand for policing services continues to increase. The figures demonstrate a step forward, but there's much more to be done, whether in terms of how we continue to attract and recruit our new officers, or how we retain those already in the service. Hewitt went on to state, We're relentlessly working to achieve our ambition of being a diverse and inclusive service that's truly representative of our communities. Chief Constable Mike Cunningham, the CEO of the College of Policing, has also observed, The figures demonstrate policing's ability to adapt to challenges and continue to recruit new officers in difficult circumstances. I'm pleased to see forces hitting recruitment numbers on this scale. Bringing 20,000 new officers into the service presents an important opportunity for police forces to become more representative of the communities they serve. On that note, Cunningham concluded, It's encouraging to see more officers joining from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds, but our work to support representation in policing doesn't stop there. The service will continue to build on this progress such that policing is able to best protect the public now and also into the future. Our first guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Sandy Davis. Sandy has served as the Executive Director of the International Foundation for Protection Officers for more than 25 years. Sandy is a former chair of the Security Services Council run by ASIS International and also a previously active member of that organization's Women in Security Council. Sandy has edited all nine editions of the Professional Protection Officer produced to date, as well as four editions of Security Supervision and Management, the Theory and Practice of Asset Protection. Sandy began her career in the contract security world back in 1980 with a primary focus on personal administration. She became deeply involved in training and was instrumental in developing security officer training programs for a major national guarding company in the States. In 2015, Sandy received the Karen Marquez Honours Award for consistently working towards the betterment of the security industry in order to support, inspire and promote the role of females working in the sector. Earlier this week, I asked Sandy about the reasoning behind the IFPO recently opening a UK branch, the current research focus for the organisation and also the importance of training and learning for security officers. First, Sandy explains the origins of the IFPO. Sandy, thank you very much for joining us on the Security Matters podcast. First of all, can you explain the origins of the International Foundation for Protection Officers and also outline the organisation's key aims and objectives in the short term? All right, so um, very well. So the IFPO was developed in 1988 in Calgary, Canada. In 1999, I moved our organization down to Naples, Florida. Our main goal and objectives has been to develop meaningful and current relevant educational opportunities for security personnel. Um, When I first uh, entered into the industry, I was appalled at how um, I I worked for a contract agency and they would employ these people and put them in a uniform and put them out to protect people, property and assets without any education or, or formal training. So really that's where this, this whole concept came about. Um, um, the, the, like I say, 
educational opportunities um, has been our focus. Um, we we um, provide um, educational opportunities for um, contract agencies, um, Fortune 500 companies, you name it. That's um, what that's what our whole focus is. Um, we just currently released our 2020 issue of the Protection Officer Training Text, which in fact is our ninth edition. Um, so we've we can we recruited 45 contributing authors, subject matter experts, to produce what we feel is an exceptional training tool or, uh, for the, our industry. Our clientele include organizations such as Amazon, Apple, Saudi Aramco. We currently have students in over 40, sorry, in over 56 countries. Uh, we have representatives um, of our organization in the Middle East, Costa Rica, South America, Europe, the UK, and recently um, Ireland. Um, just to mention a few, we, we're in every corner really of the world. And um, the feedback that we're getting is that it is making a significant difference in what security people believe to be their important job tasks or uh, complexities of their uh, their position. So um, we um, our, our our largest area of expansion is internationally. Ironically enough, where we um, we our, our our largest client is actually Saudi Aramco, which is of course in the Middle East, and they have six thousand security officers. Um, so that that in itself keeps us very busy. Doing curriculum development over the course of the uh, years is an integral part of our, our, our process as well, because as we all know, the roles and responsibilities are changing daily for security officers. Um, so we're almost uh, you know 30 years into this, and I feel that we've made some pretty big inroads. Um, we have uh, many universities and colleges that give um, continue education units to people who have completed our program. Uh, so that's that's very important to us because it brings a lot of um, credibility to us as well. So we're here for the long term. I know that the IFPO is involved in some focused research, Sandy. Could you expand on the detail here for the benefit to our readers and also the security business sector in general? So um, as I mentioned, going back to my early years of uh, being in this industry, I, I recognized that there was there was no there was no documentation about how security officers, what their jobs consisted of. Um, there was a report done in 1986 uh, by the Hawkrest report, which which did sort of a job analysis, not a real delineation study, but just a job analysis of what security officers did. Um, and nothing has been done since. And I, as an as a education educational provider, I, I, I have to scratch my head and say, well, how can we possibly provide relevant educational programs if we don't understand the job, the tasks? Um, so this has been um, something that I've had in the back of my mind for probably 15 years. And um, I was... Um, I was the chair of the Security Service Council for ASIS for a number of years, and I actually um, put together a proposal for um, a research project. That was in 2008, and we took it to the ASIS Foundation, and unfortunately, that was about the time where the economy sort of took a dive. So ASIS, understandably um, enough, that they, they, they deter, they deferred, they, they just weren't eager to spend a lot of money at that point because of the nature of our economy. Um, but that this is how far back it's gone for me. It's, 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 a, it's something that I feel 
is imperative for us to move forward. Um, the research project we've teamed up with uh, Perpetuity uh, re, uh, Research, Martin Gill's organization, and also Security Magazine has also um, uh, embraced our project and, and is going to support us. So what we want to really learn and determine is what are security officers' roles and responsibility today, 21st century security officers. So I know that Martin Gill has a, a, a really exceptional team of researchers, so they will do the research into it. We're, we're still at just in a very much um, an, an inaugural stage of this project. We have some funds to raise in order to put this together. Uh, the IFPO has already put up $15,000, but we are also looking for another $60,000 because that's what's going to cost to put this research project together. But I believe that it will impact our industry significantly in that we'll finally understand what it is that security officers do, what 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 their roles are, um, what their responsibilities are, because um, and, and it's going to vary because the security officer that is, let's say, the shopping mall security officer's job is going to be significantly different than, say, a, a, a security officer at a nuclear facility. Um, so it's going to be a very it's going to be an intensive project to put this all together so that it all melts to equate to what everybody's doing in the industry. In the U.S., uh, there's very little required for training for security personnel. A, a lot of states don't require any training. It is my intention that this research project will bring about a knowledge or a, an awareness to the states that we need to do something about this. We can't just be turning officers out with, without any educational background. They have to, it's like anything else. I mean, if you want to, um, you know, for example, if you want to be a taxi driver, you have to have a license. If you want to be a hairdresser, you have to have a license. Why don't we have license requirements for security officers throughout the world? Really, truly. Um, it's, it's long overdue. So I think that this research, it's it's going to be groundbreaking in that um, it's there's nothing tangible at this time to indicate what they're, what um, it is that security officers do. So I'm really excited about working with uh, Dr. Martin Gill and Dr. Kitteringham on this that I think we'll finally identify what it is security personnel do. The UFPO recently launched a dedicated UK branch, Sandy. What was the reasoning for going down this route and what are the key goals in sight? Okay, so um, our biggest area of growth, as I've mentioned, is our international growth. Um, our, our largest uh, uh, enrollment into our programs right now is in the Middle East, ironically enough. And um, we've seen that um, we have representatives, like I say, in Costa Rica and South America and in Europe. And we just felt that, um, you know, the more international expansion that we can um, enjoy is going to be beneficial to us. Um, Mike Hurst, as you know, is he's got more energy than I've ever seen in anybody. Oh my gosh. He, um, he's iconic in terms of, uh, his social media, um, platforms and getting the message out to people about our organization. So, um, we felt Europe has enjoyed a great deal of success. Our IFPO Europe, um, organization, we felt that, uh, when Mike came to me and said, you know, I'd like to get involved in the IFPO. I was I was elated. I know that he's had vast experience with ASIS and um, his connections and his um, ability to network been very promising for the UK. Um, I think that really any country, any demographic is going to benefit from having the IFPO's presence because we represent the security officer 
and we want to improve and careers more valuable in terms of um, we're not the night watchman anymore. We're, we're security professionals. And um, that's my big hitch is I, I just believe that the UK, um, Mike said, you know, it's right. There's nothing else that's really available there. So let's uh, introduce uh, the IFPO. And so far, so good. We're making some really good inroads. And again, I, I credit uh, Mike Hurst to that. Another thing that the IFPO is very keen on is the delivery of educational programs for the security professionals of tomorrow. What do you believe to be the major challenges here, Sandy, particularly in view of the enforced transition towards online learning during the pandemic? Looking back like five years ago, the delivery of programs were old school, traditional correspondence. Uh, very few individuals were interested in online programs. Things have changed. 90% of our enrollment is now on the online platform. Due to the pandemic and the social distancing, it only makes sense. Um, our online programs are very robust and um, user-friendly. Our programs are accompanied by a learning management system that will permit employers to um, tap into the system to determine their employees' activity and success at their ease. So um, there's a tracking system in place. Um, we have a following from high schools, vocational centers, college and universities, um, which have struggled with the transition from classroom training to online programs, but we have, um, we've actually developed a couple of um, live webinars um, and, and other resources that make the transition a little bit easier for um, the online program. So I think that the, the, biggest, the biggest area of change, of course, has been the delivery method, but a larger part of the change that we're seeing is the rules are becoming much greater for security personnel as we see that law enforcement agencies are cutting their you know their budgets and 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 cutting officers that there is a gap that we need to fill um i think that there's uh, even just as, as a, a a matter of trust i mean um, our society has to be able to trust law enforcement and security and i think as we move forward with releasing educational uh, sorry, uh, research statistics. I think that will it'll lend credibility to our or, to our industry. Um, how can governments or agencies look at us seriously without this sort of research in place? So I really feel passionate about getting this research completed, drawing some conclusions from it, and then also um, modifying or creating even more relevant training programs for, for security officers. Um, the big change too is people have lost um, perhaps, um, not respect, but um, there's a, a sense of uncertainty about law enforcement. So I think that there's a bigger opportunity for security personnel right now, and, and we need to bridge that gap and, and make that happen. So that's our focus right now is to really pay a lot of attention to what's happening in you know, in, in our society to to raise the level of opportunities for security personnel to achieve success and, and to um, provide a certain amount of uh, acceptance from um, the rest of our, our, our you know, our, to the rest of our society, really, because in the past, uh, security has been looked at in, in core light. And I think that with research and with education, that, that this is where we're going to make a change. And that's what I'm focused on. And last but by no means least, and looking towards the future now, 
What are the most important goals for the IFPO in the next five to 10 years, Sandy? Obviously, again, I, I revert back to the research project that this is this is core. This is this is rudimentary. This is necessary. And I think it's going to change our industry significantly. I think that government agencies, uh, military, um, law enforcement agencies, you name it, are going to have a different respect for security once this research project is has been released, uh, completed and released. I, 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 I see that the role of security officers are, are, is going to become more significant. Um, we're already seeing it. I think that technology um, is changing our industry as well. Um, with the advancement of technology integrated into our industry, industry, um, security officers have to be current on on such related um, items as technology. I, I, I mean, no longer is it, you know, just locking doors and turning off the lights in the building. There is, um, you know, expansive uh, requirements by security to um, maintain the safety and integrity, you know, security of many organizations. And um, I think that for us, the IFPO, we're going to stay very focused on on maintaining a high level of education. Uh, we've been criticized in the past um, for being um, perhaps uh, too significant of a program for security officers. And, and I, I've always said to my colleagues and my board of directors that we will not dummy down the IFPO programs. We're gonna make them tougher. We're gonna make them more relevant. We're gonna stay current. So um, even though we've just released our 2020 textbook, um, which took two years to prepare um, with uh, over 45 contributing authors, we're already started on the next text. I mean, it, 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 it's things are evolving that quickly that we need to um, stay current, stay on top of things, have a, 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 an elite group of um, advisors, board of directors, IFPO supporters, clients. We need to hear from all of them in order for us to, um, to be where we need to be uh, moving forward. Returning to the news now, and it's reported that the British Broadcasting Corporation receives over a quarter of a million malicious email attacks every day. Data revealed under the Freedom of Information Act by the cybersecurity team at the Parliament Street think tank has shown that an average of 283,597 malicious emails were blocked by the BBC every day over the first eight months of this year. On a monthly basis, the data shows that the organisation receives an average of 6,704,188 hostile emails classed as either scam messages or spam. Additionally, an average of 18,662 malware attacks such as viruses, ransomware and spyware are also blocked. Across the eight-month period running from January to August this year, a total of over 51 million infected emails were blocked by the BBC's cyber defence systems. The worst month for attacks was July, with a huge total of nearly 7 million incidents recorded. Of these episodes, a total of 6,787,635 were spam and 13,592 showing up as malware. The second highest month was March, when the COVID-19 outbreak was exhibiting its initial worst stages here in the UK. At that time, the BBC received 6,768,632 spam attempts and 14,089 malware attempts. In the past, the BBC has experienced multiple incidents when it comes to cyber attempts and potential breaches. In 2013, the national broadcaster's Twitter feed was subject to a phishing hack by what appeared to be sympathisers of Syrian President Bashar Assad. At the time, the BBC said that the phishing emails contained what appeared to be links to the Guardian newspaper or Human Rights Watch Online and directed users 
users to a fake webmail portal. In 2016, there was another hack, with an anti-ISIS hacking group claiming responsibility for downing BBC websites and services on New Year's Eve. Prior to this, there was a cyber incident in December 2015, when all of the BBC's websites were unavailable because of a large web attack. It's believed that a web attack technique known as distributed denial of service was employed on this occasion. This form of attack aims to knock a site offline by swamping it with more traffic than it can handle. The data obtained from the Freedom of Information request strongly suggests that it's an ongoing struggle for the BBC to obstruct these malware, phishing and spam attempts in order to avoid a major breach of its digital systems. Commenting on the news, Tim Sadler, the CEO at Tessian, informed Security Matters, the global pandemic has presented the perfect opportunity for hackers phishing scams. We can clearly see this reflected in the spike of malicious attacks on the BBC. In the wake of the pandemic's outbreak, journalists and employees alike would have been busier and more distracted than usual. Using clever social engineering techniques, cyber criminals prey on people's desire for information during uncertain times and bank on the fact that busy, distracted and stressed employees may miss the signs of a phishing email and fall for their scams. The key takeaway from all of this is that companies must have security measures in place to immediately predict such email threats and warn people before they click on or otherwise download an attachment. This is by no means a new security message, but is it continuing to fall on deaf ears? Our final news story for episode 15 concerns the 19 Group, the organiser of the premier events for practitioners operating in the specialist disciplines of security, counter-terrorism, cybersecurity and disaster response. The company has recently announced a detailed schedule for the first ever International Security Week. This will run from Monday the 30th of November through until Thursday the 3rd of December. Incorporating International Security Expo, International Cyber Expo and also International Disaster Response Expo, International Security Week will deliver a wealth of information during a series of exclusive, free-to-watch online sessions that elevate the event beyond the typical slide presentation and webcam format witnessed at most virtual conferences. In the UK alone, funding for counter-terrorism policing will grow to £906 million for 2020-2021. That in fact represents a £90 million year-on-year increase. With this in mind, International Security Week offers viewers a chance to hear a host of different perspectives on the challenges being faced by nations and businesses, operating across both the public and private sectors, as well as those affected first-hand by terrorism. Opened on each day by International Security Week Chair Lord West of Spithead, the week will be split into four key sections available to watch live or on demand via the dedicated International Security Week website. Importantly, International Security Week is certified for CPD by the Security Institute. Attendees will receive CPD points for every session watched. Day 1 focuses on international matters and is sponsored by HS Security. There will be discussion around the Protect Duty, which aims to provide UK citizens with better protection from terrorism, in addition to an exclusive session with Amen Dean, former member of Al-Qaeda turned MI6 spy, who will discuss how Islamic-based terrorism is developing and what the security sector should look out for in attempting to prevent it. Day 2 of International Security Week covers cybersecurity in detail and is sponsored by Tripwire itself a specialist in the arena of establishing a strong cybersecurity foundation and protecting the integrity of mission-critical systems spanning the physical, virtual, cloud and DevOps environments. In a not-to-be-missed session, host Philip Ingram and Anthony Leather, co-founder and director of Westland Advisory, will discuss the consultancy's latest cyber research that's scheduled to launch exclusively during International Security Week and encompasses the very latest data on key industry trends, technology and market growth. Day 3 is all about law and order. In an unstable economic climate, there's arguably nothing more important important than avoiding disruption to critical national infrastructure. During International Security Week, panel of experts from a number of CNI sectors will join forces to explain their role in protecting nations' assets through policy and implementation, as well as discussing the wider cyber perspective. Averting a crisis is the highest priority for security professionals, but when disaster occurs, it's vital to be prepared. On the final day of International Security Week 2020, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the MP for Berwick-upon-Tweed and former Minister for International Development, will deliver the keynote speech in relation to the subject matter of disaster response. There's no 
doubt that international security week runs at an important juncture for many security, counterterrorism and disaster response professionals. We continue to live in uncertain and unprecedented times wherein the threats remain. On that basis, it's vital that nations and businesses alike continue to evolve their security in order to protect citizens and employees. The readers of Security Matters can register for International Security Week by visiting the event's website at www.internationalsecurityexpo.com. Our second guest on episode 15 of the Security Matters podcast is Ashley Whiten, Sales Director for the Comlet Group here in the UK. Ashley began his career by joining ADT as a trainee sales consultant, before then moving into the company's integrated solutions group as a design consultant working on major projects. He was then presented with an opportunity to join Cooper Security in the role of area sales manager covering the South West, South Wales and Ireland. A spell with Fleur Systems as security and surveillance distribution manager followed, before Ashley was approached to join 360 Vision Technology as international sales and marketing manager. He joined the Comlet group from Honeywell Security, where he enjoyed roles as systems sales lead and then strategic sales lead for the UK and Ireland. The Comlet Group specialises in the design and manufacture of video entry, video surveillance, anti-intrusion, access control, home automation and fire protection systems. During our podcast interview, Ashley explains how the business has been coping with COVID-19, outlines current trends he's seeing in the sector and also focuses on the product innovations in store at the Comlet Group for 2021. Twenty twenty has of course been dominated by COVID nineteen, Ashley. Given the hugely challenging times in which we all find ourselves at present, how well do you feel the Comlet Group has actively faced up to the pandemic? Well, uh, 2020 uh, saw us move into our brand new uh, purpose-built offices. So it started very well. <laughs> um, and then, as you say, yeah, COVID hit. Now, as a business, uh, Comlet UK um, were affected, as, as many, many other companies were. But I feel we were affected to a lesser degree than expected. Um, and the latter part of Q2 and into Q3 saw us recover, actually, um, the low intake of orders we encountered um, in April and May, when the, the lockdown was at its fullest. Um, and the outlook for the year, um, December, is looking very positive um, with all projects ex- ex- still expected to close um, in 2020, which is great. Um, and I would say, as strange as it sounds, uh, 2020 has probably been one of the most rewarding of my career. Um, and the reason for that is seeing a team faced with adversity like we haven't seen before and conduct themselves um, with professionalism and resilience has been both humbling and I'm incredibly proud to lead the team I do. So, yeah, as a business, we've, we've had to adapt and overcome. Um, and I felt we've done that with, uh, with great resilience. And in what ways has the pandemic fundamentally changed the way in which you've operated and functioned as a business, actually? So uh, as a business, we adapted very quickly to the situation. Obviously, um, being Italian, um, an Italian company, uh, we were very proactive given what we were hearing from Italy with the pandemic. Um, obviously, they were hit incredibly hard over there, which is incredibly sad. Um, so as, as a business, we actually moved all of our internal team um, to home offices and that was actually before the mandated lockdown um, came into effect on the 23rd of March and it's meant that we've had to be um, more proactive than we've ever been before Um, and I think this was shown in our business together pledge that we put together um, and that was open for business with full technical operational and sales support services We hold a very large amount of stock here in the UK readily available, and that was both available on next day delivery, even through the lockdown, or collection. So socially distant, COVID secure uh, collections were available. We continue, as I just said, shipping five days a week. We were still able, as I say, to deliver next day to meet those tight deadlines. 
We offered free, free delivery through May, June and July so that customers felt that they could still order and obviously it helped them a little bit with cash flow and things. We um, operated with our internal and external teams who were obviously able to arrange socially distanced meetings when required, so it kept business moving again. We also kept um, in close contact with our industry peers um, to offer moral support as we face this adverse situation together. I think it's important that, you know, although in, in business we may be competitors, it's important that, you know, sharing information and best practices, I guess, on how we were doing things was important. And then, obviously, um, as we progress into the new normal, whatever that is, We've been very, very proactive um, and ensured that our offices are fully COVID secure. So we can still welcome visitors um, to our fantastic demo facility, um, albeit at a a much reduced volume of people. Um, And our large external team are still actively seeing customers. Uh, However, again, this is only where COVID secure measures are followed. And for the benefit of the readers of Security Matters, could you explain how the dedicated fire and safety solutions focus element of the Comlink Group differs from that to the security-centric side of the business? Well, obviously, um, the technology differs, as we all know, um, quite quite substantially. However, the sales process is the same. Um, we're strongly pushing collaboration between our security and fire teams, as a lot of the customer base is mutual, and a large amount of our customer base install both fire and security. So there's lots of synergy with our product ranges. Um, Obviously, that also gives the installer peace of mind that they're dealing with one supplier to offer the client a complete solution. So it's the whole, the one hand to hold, one throat to choke kind of scenario. Um, We've also invested significant training um, on fire products across the BDM team. So that's the entire BDM team. And that's to make sure that they can talk both fire and or entry and security, albeit at a fairly low level with fire, because then we bring in the experts. Um, other similarities, I guess, the, the uh, dedication to pre and post support. Um, we've invested quite heavily in a um, technical and training manager who has 30 years of experience in fire. So again, he supports um, the fire side, but obviously has synergy with security. But a very, very slight variation between fire and security is our distribution route, I guess. So for the, for the benefit of the readers, if they're a security customer, they would probably buy their security products from one kind of um, section of the security distribution market. But the fire, we've decided to, to take a different, slightly different approach with more focus being applied to dedicated fire distribution. Um, as we feel as a business, this will support the customer as the knowledge for fire obviously differs. Um, it's important that they have a dedicated fire specialist distribution. And looking at the security business sector in general, Ashley, and based on your own experience in recent times, what would you say is a big trend in play at the moment? Well, clearly, um, for me, uh, cloud-based app control is definitely on the increase, with uh, more and more of our daily lives being influenced by the Internet of Things. Um, Pomlet have a great app that integrates all of our products, and we are definitely seeing a trend in user requirements um, to be able to use their systems on smartphones and tablets. And they want to do that in a single app rather than multiple apps. I mean, in my private life, I've, I'm quite a fan of home automation as, a, as an example. And I have lots of different apps for lots of different things. So I guess in line with this trend, um, 
Comlet have recently re- uh, launched the integration of Amazon Alexa as well, which is quite exciting. So again, we're seeing more and more of those devices in um, in people's homes. So that's definitely on the increase in a trend. It makes the uh, user experience uh, more versatile and convenient than ever before. Um, and this is definitely what end users are looking for. And finally, Ashley, what new innovations are in store at Comlet for 2021? Um, as an industry, uh, we're seeing demand in products that are both innovative yet easy to install. Obviously, the installer is always at the heart of everything we do. Um, we have an incredibly exciting 2021 coming up with two fantastic products being released. In our door entry range, we have the brand new Ultra. Um, that's a brand new range of door entry panels. Um, Ultra is a huge step forward in door entry. Um, it's designed to adapt to the most diverse applications from individual homes to large residential complexes. Um, It's very modular in its um, nature, which means it's very easy to expand systems. In the door entry world, obviously, you know, you do get that kind of expansion of properties and and wanting to add more monitors and more buttons, more doors kind of thing. Um, It has a, a really nice touch screen. So again, it's that kind of look and feel that the customers are looking for. Um, we're also launching a very exciting new wireless intruder product, um, and this works seamlessly with our door entry and CCTV products. And it also links effortlessly to the Comlet Cloud app, um, giving the user, again, end, the end user peace of mind that their precious belongings are being protected. We've also worked very hard this year on becoming secured by design which again gives the client and the end user peace of mind that the system that they're installing is fit for purpose. So it's quite a significant step forward. So yeah, we're really, really looking forward to a, to a strong start to 2021. And also, just to tag on to that, we've got a new range of fire panels being launched early in 2021, which will add a huge array of exciting new features on what we already offer. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Sandy Davis of the International Foundation for Protection Officers and also Ashley Whiten from the Comlet Group for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our weekly e-news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.